Chapter 1, Parts 5 and 6 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 1, Parts 5 and 6 Chapter 5, The Second Expedition The original interference of Athens in the local affairs of Sicily, her appearance to defend Segesta against Selinus, and the Leontines against Syracuse, has grown into a gigantic struggle, in which the greater part of the Hellenic nation is engaged. The elder stage of the Peloponnesian War has begun again, with the addition of a Sicilian war on such a scale as had never been seen before. In that elder stage, Sicilian warfare had been a mere appendage to warfare in old Greece. Now Sicily has become the centre of the struggle, the headquarters of both sides. For Sicily itself, the struggle was now becoming a question of life and death, such as the Persian invasion had been for Greece. Syracuse, under the guidance of Hermocrates and Gylippus, put forth all her energy in the organisation of a fleet, and in the spring she had a navy numbering eighty triremes. The crews were inexperienced, but they could remember that it was under the pressure of the Persian danger that Athens herself had learnt her sea skill. Gylippus determined to attack the Athenian station at Plemirion by land and sea. By sea the Syracusans were defeated, but while the naval battle was being fought in the harbour, a land force under Gylippus had marched round to Plemirion and captured the forts on the headland. The Athenian ships were thus forced back to their station, close to their double wall on the north of the harbour, of which the entrance was now commanded by the Syracusans. The Athenians were thus besieged both by land and sea, and could not venture to send ships out of the harbour except in a number sufficient to resist an attack. Presently the new Syracusan sea-power achieved the important success of capturing off the Italian coast a treasure-fleet which was on its way from Athens. At length the news came that the great fleet under Eurymedon and Demosthenes was on its way. It consisted of seventy-three triremes. There were five thousand hoplites and immense numbers of light-armed troops. The chance of Syracuse lay in attacking the dispirited forces of Nicias before the help arrived, and it was obviously the policy of Nicias, a congenial policy, to remain inactive. The Syracusans made a simultaneous assault on the walls by land and on the naval station below the walls by sea. The land attack was beaten off, but two days' fighting by sea resulted in a distinct victory for Syracuse. The great harbour was too small for the Athenians to win the advantage of their superiority in seamanship, and their ships were not adapted for the kind of sea warfare which was possible in a narrow space. The effective use of the long, light beaks depended on the possibility of manoeuvring, the Syracusans had shaped the beaks of their vessels with a view to the narrow space, by making them short and heavy. On the day after the victory, the fleet of Eurymedon and Demosthenes sailed into the great harbour. Demosthenes saw at once that all was over, unless the Syracusan cross-wall were captured. 
An attempt to carry it from the south was defeated, and the only alternative was to march round the west end of the hill, and ascend by the old path near Euryalus. It was a difficult enterprise, guarded as the west part of Epipoli was, by the forts, as well as the wall, and by a picked body of six hundred men who were constantly keeping watch. A moonlight night was chosen for the attempt. The Athenians were at first successful. One fort was taken, and the six hundred under Hermocrates himself were repelled. But when one part of their force received a decisive check from the Thespians, the disorder spread to the rest, and they fell back everywhere, driven down the hill on top of their comrades who had not yet reached the summit. Some, throwing away their shields, leapt from the cliffs. About two thousand were slain. These failures damped the spirits of the army, and Demosthenes saw that no profit could be won by remaining any longer where they were. The only wise course was to leave the unhealthy marsh, while they still had command of the sea, and before the winter came. At Syracuse they were merely wasting strength and money. But though Demosthenes had the sense of the army, and the sense of the other commanders with him, he could not persuade Nicias to adopt this course. The same quality of nature which had made Nicias oppose the council of Lamachus to attack Syracuse, now made him oppose the council of Demosthenes to leave Syracuse. Fear of responsibility was the dominant note in the character of Nicias. He was afraid of Polydemus and the Trojan women. He was afraid of the censure, perhaps the condemnation, of the Athenian assembly. Nor would he even accept the compromise of retiring to Catani and carrying on the war on a new plan. Demosthenes and Eurymedon, being two to one, should have insisted on instant departure, but they foolishly yielded to the obstinacy of their senior colleague. In a few days, however, events overbore the resolution of Nicias himself. Gylippus arrived at Syracuse with new contingents he had collected in the islands, and Peloponnesian and Boeotian succours, after a long roundabout journey by way of Cyrene, at length reached the great harbour. Nicias gave way, and everything was ready for departure. But on the night on which they were to start, the enemy suspecting nothing, the full moon suffered an eclipse. The superstitious army regarded the phenomenon as a heavenly warning, and cried out for delay. Nicias was not less superstitious than the sailors. Unluckily, his best prophet, Stilbides, was dead, and the other diviners ruled that he must wait either three days or for the next full moon. There was perhaps a difference of opinion among the seers, and Nicias decided to be on the safe side by waiting the longer period. Never was a celestial phenomenon more truly disastrous than that lunar eclipse. With the aid of Nicias, it sealed the doom of the Athenian army. Religious rites occupied the next few days, but meanwhile the Syracusans had learned of the Athenian intention to abandon the siege. Their confidence was raised by the implied confession of defeat, and they resolved not to be content with having saved their city, but to destroy the host of the enemy before it could escape. So they drew up their fleet, seventy-six ships, in the great harbour for battle, and eighty-six Athenian ships moved out to meet them. The Athenians were at a disadvantage as before, having no room for manoeuvring, and centre, right, and left, they were defeated. The general Eurymedon was slain. The left wing was driven back on the marshy northwest shore of the harbour, between their own wall and Dascon. A force under Gylippus endeavoured to advance along the swamp of Lysimelea and prevent the crews of their ships from landing, 
but he was driven off by the Etruscan allies of Athens, who had been sent to guard the shore here. Then there was a battle for the ships, and the Syracusans succeeded in dragging away eighteen. The defeat completed the dejection of the Athenian army. The victory crowned the confidence of their enemies. The one thought of the Athenians was to escape. The eclipse was totally forgotten. But Syracuse was determined that escape should be made impossible. The mouth of the great harbour was barricaded by a line of ships and boats of all kinds and sizes, bound together by chains and connected by bridges. The fate of the Athenians depended on their success in breaking through that barrier. They abandoned their posts on the hill and went on board their ships. At this critical moment Nicias revealed the best side of his character. He left nothing undone that could hearten his troops. We are told that after the usual speech, still thinking, as men do in the hour of great struggles, that he had not done, that he had not said, half enough, he went round the fleet in a boat, making a personal appeal to the triarch of each ship. He spoke to them, as men will at such times, of their wives and children, and the gods of their country, for men do not care whether their words sound commonplace, but only think that they may have some effect in the terrible moment. The paean sounded, and the Athenian lines sailed forth together across the bay to attack the barrier. When they reached it, Syracusan vessels came out against them on all sides. The Athenians were driven back into the middle of the harbour, and the battle resolved itself into an endless number of separate conflicts. The battle was long and wavered. The walls of the island, the slopes of Acradina above, were crowded with women and old men, the shores below with warriors, watching the course of the struggle. Thucydides gives a famous description of the scene. One would think that he had been an eyewitness. The fortune of the battle varied, and it was not possible that the spectators on the shore should all receive the same impression of it. Being quite close and having different points of view, they would, some of them, see their own ships victorious. Their courage would then revive, and they would earnestly call upon the gods not to take from them their hope of deliverance. But others, who saw their ships worsted, cried and shrieked aloud, and were by the sight alone more utterly unnerved than the defeated combatants themselves. Others again, who had fixed their gaze on some part of the struggle which was undecided, were in a state of excitement still more terrible. They kept swaying their bodies to and fro in an agony of hope and fear, as the stubborn conflict went on and on. For at every instant they were all but saved, or all but lost. And while the strife hung in the balance, you might hear in the Athenian army at once lamentation, shouting, cries of victory or defeat, and all the various sounds which are wrung from a great host in extremity of danger. Those motions of human passion, suspense, agony, triumph, despair, which swayed to and fro in the breasts of thousands, round and over the waters of the great harbour, on that September day, have been lifted out of the tide of time, and preserved for ever by the genius of Thucydides. In the end the Athenians gave way. They were driven back to the shelter of their own wall, chased by the foe. The crews of the remnant of the navy, which amounted to sixty ships, rushed on shore as best they could. The land forces were in a panic. No such panic had ever been experienced in an Athenian army. Thucydides compares the situation to that of the Spartans at Sphacteria. The generals did not even think of asking for the customary truce to bury the corpses which were strewn over the waters of the bay. 
Demosthenes proposed that they should make another attempt to pass the barrier at daybreak. Their ships were even now rather more numerous than those of the enemy, but the men positively refused to embark. Nothing remained but to escape by land. If they had started at once, they would probably have succeeded in reaching shelter at Catani or inland among the friendly sickles. But Hermocrates contrived a stratagem to delay their departure, so as to give him time to block the roads. Taking advantage of the known fact that there were persons in Syracuse who intrigued with the besiegers, he sent some horsemen who rode up within earshot of the Athenian camp, and feigning to be friends, stated that the roads were guarded, and that it would be well to wait and set out better prepared. The message was believed. The Athenians remained the next day, and the Syracusans blocked the roads. In his picture of the sad start of the Athenians on their forlorn retreat, Thucydides outdoes his wonderful powers of description. They had to tear themselves away from the prayers of their sick and wounded comrades, who were left to the mercy of the enemy. They could hardly make up their minds to go. The bit of hostile soil, under the shelter of their walls, had come to seem to them like their home. Nicias, notwithstanding his illness, rose to this supreme occasion as he had never risen to another. He tried to cheer and animate the miserable host, whose wretched plight was indeed of his own making, by words of hope. They set forth, Nicias leading the van, Demosthenes the rear, along the western road which crosses the Annapus and passes the modern village of Floridia. The aim was to reach Sickle territory first, and then to get to Catani as they could, for it would have been madness to attempt the straight road to Catani round the west of Epipoli, under the Syracusan forts. The chief difficulty in their way was a high point called the Acrean Cliff, approached by a rugged pass which begins near Floridia. It was not till the fourth day that, having toiled along the pass under constant annoyance from darters and horsemen, they came in sight of the cliff, and found that the way was barred by a wall, with a garrison of Syracusan hoplites behind it. To attempt to pass was impossible. They retreated on Floridia in a heavy thunderstorm. They now moved southwards, and abandoning the idea of reaching the Sickle Hill land from this point, marched to the Helorine road, which would take them in the direction of Gela. During the sixth day's march, a sort of panic seems to have fallen on the rear of the army under Demosthenes. The men lagged far behind, and the army was parted in two. Nicias advanced with his division as speedily as he could. There were several streams to cross, and it was all important to press on before the Syracusans had time to block the passages by walls and palisades. The Helorine road approaches the shore near the point where the river Cacyparis flows into the sea. When they reached the ford, the Athenians found a Syracusan band on the other side raising a fortification. They drove the enemy away without much difficulty, and marched as far as the river Erineus, where they encamped for the night. On the next morning a Syracusan herald drew near. He had news to tell. The rear of the army had been surrounded the day before, in the olive-garden of Polysalus, through which the Helorine road passed, and had been forced to surrender. The lives of the six thousand men were to be spared. Demosthenes did not condescend to make terms for himself, and when the capitulation had been arranged, he sought death by his own hand, but the enemy, who desired to secure a captive general, intercepted the stroke. 
having sent a messenger under a truce to assure himself of the truth of the tale, Nicias offered terms to the Syracusans, that the rest of the army should be allowed to go free, on condition that Athens should repay the costs of the war, the security being a hostage for every talent. The terms were at once rejected. The Syracusans were bent on achieving the glory of leading the whole army captive. For that day the miserable army remained where it was, worn out with want of food. Next morning they resumed the march, and harassed by the darts of the enemy, made their way to the stream of the Asinarus. Here they found a hostile force on the opposite steep bank. But they cared little for the foe, for they were consumed with intolerable thirst. They rushed down into the bed of the river, struggling with one another to reach the water. The Syracusans who were pursuing came down the banks and slaughtered them, unresisting as they drank. The water was soon foul, but muddy and dyed with blood as it was, they drank notwithstanding and fought for it. At last Nicias surrendered. He surrendered to Gylippus, for he had more trust in him than in the Syracusans. The slaughter, which was as great as any that had been wrought in the war, was then stayed, and the survivors were made prisoners. It seems that a great many of the captives were appropriated for their own use by the individual victors, and their lot may have been comparatively light. But the fate of the state prisoners was cruel. Several thousand were thrown into the stone quarries of Acradina, deep unroofed dungeons, open to the chills of night and the burning heat of the day, on a miserable allowance of food and water. The allies of the Athenians were kept in this misery for seventy days. The Athenians themselves were doomed to endure the torture for six months longer, throughout the whole winter. Such was the vengeance which Syracuse wreaked upon her invaders. The prisoners who survived the ordeal were put to work in the public prison, or sold. Some were rescued by young men who were attracted by their manners. Others owed mitigation of their lot, even freedom, to the power which an Athenian poet exercised over the hearts of men, in Sicily as well as in his own city. Slaves who knew speeches and choruses of the plays of Euripides by heart, and could recite them well, found favour in the sight of their masters, and we hear of those who, after many days, returned to their Athenian homes, and thanked the poet for their deliverance. Some mystery has hung round the fate of the two generals, Demosthenes and Nicias, but there is no doubt that they were put to death without mercy, and some reason to suppose that they were not spared the pain of torture. Hermocrates and Gylippus would have wished to save them, but they were powerless in face of the intense feeling of fury against Athens, which animated Syracuse in the hour of her triumph. If a man's punishment should be proportionate, not to his intentions, but to the positive sum of mischief which his conduct has caused, no measure of punishment would have been too great for the deserts of Nicias. His incompetence, his incredible bungling, ruined the expedition, and led to the downfall of Athens. But the blunders of Nicias were merely the revelation of his own nature, and for his own nature he could hardly be held accountable. The whole blame rests with the Athenian people, who insisted on his playing a part for which he was utterly unsuited. It has already been observed that one dominant note of the character of Nicias was fear of responsibility. Throughout the whole war there was no post which so absolutely demanded the power of undertaking full responsibility as that of chief commander in this great and distant expedition.
and yet Nicias was chosen. The selection shows that he was popular as well as respected. He was popular with his army, and he seems to have been hardly a sufficiently strict disciplinarian. It has been well said that in the camp he never forgot that the soldiers whom he commanded had votes in the ecclesia which they might use against himself when they returned to Athens. Timid as a general, timid as a statesman, hampered by superstition, the decorous Nicias was a brave soldier and an amiable man, whose honourable qualities were the means of leading him into a false position. If he had been less scrupulous and devout, and had been endowed with better brains, he would not have ruined his country. Given the men a people chooses, it has been said, the people itself, in its exact worth and worthlessness, is given. In estimating the character of the Athenian people, we must not forget their choice of this hero of conscientious indecision. So deep is the pity which the tragic fate of the Athenians excites in us that we almost forget to sympathise with the sons of Syracuse in the joy of their deliverance. Yet they deserve our sympathy. They had passed through a sore trial, and they had destroyed the powerful invader who had come to rob them of their freedom. To celebrate the anniversaries of their terrible victory, they instituted games which they called Asinarian, after the river which had witnessed the last scene. In connection with these games, some beautiful coins were struck. Perhaps there is nothing which enlists our affections for Syracuse so much as her coins. And it was at this very period that she brought the art of engraving coin dies to perfection. Never in any country, in any age of the world, was the art of engraving on metal practised with such high inspiration and such consummate skill as in Sicily. No holy place in Hellas possessed diviner faces in bronze or marble than the faces which the Sicilian cities circulated on their silver money. The greatest of the Sicilian artists were Syracusan, and among the greatest of the Syracusan were Evinetus and Cymon. The die engraver's achievements may seem small compared with the life-size or colossal works of a sculptor, yet, as creators of the beautiful, Evinetus and his fellows may claim to stand in the same rank as Phidias. Their heads of Persephone and of the water-nymph Arethusa, encircled by dolphins, their wonderful four-horse chariots, seem to invest Syracuse with a glory to which she hardly attained. In the years after the defeat of Athens, there were several issues of large ten-drachm medallions, modelled on those Damaratian coins which had commemorated Gelon's victory at Himera. The engraving of these was committed to Cymon and Evinetus, and a nameless artist, perhaps a greater than either, of whom a single medallion, an exquisite Persephone crowned with barley, has been found on the slopes of Etna. End of Part 5 Part 6 Consequences of the Sicilian Catastrophe The Sicilian expedition was part of the general aggressive policy of Athens, which made her unpopular in Greece. Unjust that policy was, but this enterprise was not more fragrantly unrighteous than some of her other undertakings, and it had the plausible enough pretext of protecting the weaker cities in the West against the stronger. More fruitful is the question whether the expedition was expedient from a purely political point of view. It was often said that it was a wild venture, an instance of a whole people going mad, like the English people, in the matter of the Crimean War 
it is hard to see how this view can be maintained. If there were ever an enterprise of which the wisdom cannot be judged by the result, it is the enterprise against Syracuse. All the chances were in its favour. If the advice of Lamachus had been taken, and Syracuse attacked at once, there cannot be much doubt that Syracuse would have fallen at the outset. If Nicias had not let precious time pass, and delayed the completion of the wall to the northern cliff of Epipoli, the doom of the city was sealed. Gilippus could never have entered. The failure was due to nothing in the character of the enterprise itself, but entirely to the initial mistake in the appointment of the general. And it was quite in the nature of things that Athenian sea-power, predominant in the east, should seek further expansion in the west. An energetic establishment of Athenian influence in that region was recommended by the political situation. It must be remembered that the most serious and abiding hostility with which Athens had to reckon was the commercial rivalry of Corinth, and the close alliance of Corinth with her Dorian daughters and friends in the west was a strong and adequate motive for Athenian intervention. The necessity of a counterweight to Corinthian influence in Sicily and Italy had long been recognised. Some attempts had been made to meet it, and when peace with Sparta set Athenian forces free for service outside Greece and the Aegean, it was natural that the opportunity should be taken to act effectively in the West. The infatuation of the Athenian people was shown not in willing the expedition, but in committing it to Nicias, instead of Demosthenes, who was clearly marked out for the task, and then in recalling Alcibiades. These blunders seemed to point to something wrong in the constitution or its working. They did, in fact, show that an expedition of that kind was liable to be mismanaged when any of the arrangements connected with its execution depended on a popular assembly, or might be interfered with for party purposes. To Thucydides it was clear that the primary mistakes were political, not military. And after the disaster of the Asinaros, there was a feeling that some change must be made in the administration. Athens was hard-pressed by the Lacedaemonian post at Decalia, which stopped cultivation and became a refuge for deserting slaves. Of these slaves, who numbered about 20,000, we can hardly doubt that many belonged to the gangs which worked in the mines of Laurion. In any case, one most disastrous effect of the seizure of Decalia was the closing of the mines, since even southern Attica was at the mercy of the Lacedaemonians. Thus, one of the chief sources of Athenian revenue was cut off. She was robbed of her supply of Laureot owls, and in a few years we find her melting gold dedicatory offerings to make gold coins, and even coining in copper thinly plated with silver. Thus the treasury was at a low ebb, and there were no men to replace those who were lost in Sicily. It was felt that the committees of the Council of Five Hundred were hardly competent to conduct the city through such a crisis. A smaller and more permanent body was required, and the chief direction of affairs was entrusted to a board of ten, named Probuli, which practically superseded the Council for the time being. Shortly before this a change had been made in the system of tribute payment. The fixed assessment was replaced by a tax of 5% on all imports and exports carried by sea to or from the harbours of the empire. It was thought that this duty would produce a larger income than the tribute, 
and it might seem a more equitable principle for payment, for it would be paid by those who had profited most from the growth of Aegean trade under the Athenian thalassocracy. Its effectiveness, however, depended on the requisite display of strength by Athens. No doubt there was considerable scope for disputing the amount due. At all events, the old system of tribute was restored as soon as the first substantial Athenian victory gave grounds again for confidence. The financial pressure was shown by the dismissal of a body of Thracian mercenaries who had arrived too late to sail to Sicily. They returned home under the conduct of Diotrephes, who was instructed to employ them on the road in any way he could against the enemy. Sailing northward between Euboea and the mainland, they disembarked on the coast of Boeotia, and reaching the small town of Mycalesus at daybreak, captured it. Nothing was ever so unexpected and terrible. The Thracians showed their barbarity in massacring all the inhabitants, nay, every living thing they saw. They broke into a boys' school, and killed all the children. Reforms did not avert the dangers which threatened Athens. The tidings of the great calamity which had befallen the flower of her youth in Sicily moved Hellas from end to end. The one thought of enemies, neutrals and subjects alike, was to seize the opportunity of shattering the power of Athens irretrievably. Messages came from some of the chief allies, from Euboea, from Lesbos, from Chios, to Agis at Decalia, to the Ephors at Sparta, declaring that they were ready to revolt if a Peloponnesian fleet appeared off their coasts. A fleet was clearly necessary to do the work that was to be done. A naval policy was forced upon Sparta by the case. It was decided that a hundred ships should be equipped, of which half, in equal shares, were to be supplied by Sparta and Boeotia. Athens also spent the winter in building triremes, and fortified Cape Sunium to protect the arrival of her corn ships. King Agis, while he was at Decalia, possessed the right of sending troops wherever he chose. He received the overtures from Euboea and Lesbos, and promised assistance. But Spartan interference in these islands was deferred owing to the more pressing demands of Chios, which were addressed directly to Sparta, and were backed by the support of a great power, whose voice for many years had not been heard in the sphere of the politics of Hellas. Persia now enters once more upon the stage of Greek history, aiming at the recovery of the coast cities of Asia Minor, and for this purpose playing off one Greek power against another. The Sicilian disaster, suggested to Tissaphernes, the satrap of Sardis, and to Pharnabazus, the satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, that it was the moment to wrest from Athens her Asiatic dominions. This must be done by stirring up revolt, and by a close alliance with Sparta. Each satrap was anxious to secure for himself the credit of having brought about such a profitable alliance, and each independently sent envoys to Lacedaemon, Pharnabazus urging action in the Hellespont, Tissaphernes supporting the appeal of Chios. The Chian demand, which had the powerful advocacy of Alcibiades, carried the day. In the following summer the rebellion against Athens actively began. The appearance of a few Spartan ships was the signal for the formal revolt of Chios, and then, in conjunction with the Chian fleet, they excited Miletus, Tios, Lebedus to follow in the same path. Methymna and Mytilene lost little time in joining the movement, and were followed by Chime and Phocia. 
the Athenian historian has words of commendation for the city which played the chief part in this rebellion. No people, says Thucydides, as far as I know, except the Chians and the Lacedaemonians, but the Chians not equally with the Lacedaemonians, have preserved moderation in prosperity, and in proportion as their city has gained in power, have gained also in the stability of their government. In this revolt they may seem to have shown a want of prudence, yet they did not venture upon it until many brave allies were ready to share the peril with them and until the Athenians themselves seemed to confess that after their calamity in Sicily the state of their affairs was hopelessly bad. And if they were deceived through the uncertainty of human things, the error of judgment was common to many who, like them, believed that the Athenian power would speedily be overthrown. This successful beginning led to the Treaty of Miletus between Sparta and Persia. In the hope of humbling to the dust her detested rival, the city of Leonidas now sold to the barbarian the freedom of her fellow Greeks of Asia. The Persian claim was that Athens had usurped the rights of the great king for well nigh seventy years over the Asiatic cities, and that arrears of tribute were owing to him for all that time. Sparta recognized the right of the great king to all the dominion which belonged to him and his forefathers, and he undertook to supply the pay for the seamen of the Peloponnesian fleet, operating on the Asiatic coast, while the war with Athens lasted. It may be said for Sparta that she merely wanted to get the money at the time, and had no intention of honourably carrying out her dishonourable undertaking, but hoped to rescue the Greek cities in the end. But the Treaty of Miletus opened up a new path in Greek politics, which was to lead the Persian king to the position of arbiter of Hellas. Meanwhile Athens had not been idle. Straightened by want of money, she had been forced to pass a measure to touch the reserve fund of one thousand talents. She blockaded a Corinthian fleet destined for Chios on the Argolic coast. She laid Chios itself waste and blockaded the town. She won back Lesbos and gained some successes at Miletus. But Cnidus rebelled. The Peloponnesians gained an advantage in a naval engagement at the small island of Sime, and this was followed by the revolt of Rhodes. This island was still divided between the territories of the three cities of Lindus, Ialysus, and Camirus. But a few years after the revolt, the foundation of the island's future power was laid by the cynicism of the three communities in the common city of Rhodes. By the spring of 411 the situation was that Athens had her northern and Hellespontine confederacy intact, but that on the western coast of Asia little of importance remained to her but Lesbos, Samos, Kos and Halicarnassus. She was confronted by a formidable Peloponnesian fleet, supported by Persia and by a considerable reinforcement from Sicily, twenty-two vessels under Hermocrates, the return of Syracuse for her deliverance. It could not be said, indeed, that all things had gone smoothly between Persia and Lacedaemon. Differences had arisen as to the amount of the subsidies, and a new treaty was concluded in which the rights of the king were less distinctly formulated. In the meantime Alcibiades had been cultivating the friendship of Tissaphernes at Miletus, and had on that account become an object of suspicion at Sparta. He had a bitter enemy in King Agis, whose wife he had seduced. Seeing that his life was in danger, he had left Miletus, and gone to the court of the satrap, where he began a new series of machinations with a view to his own return to Athens. 
Indeed, his work at Sparta had now been done, and political changes which were in the air at Athens invited the formation of new schemes. The man who had done much to bring about the alliance of Tissaphernes with Sparta now set himself to dissolve that union and bring about an understanding between the satrap and Athens. End of part six.